Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Nicole Franklin. Bryant Monte is on assignment, but with me today is James Meredith, an icon in the history books. He integrated the University of Mississippi and much, much more. It takes us a minute to get started, but when we do, it's worth it. Also a warning, you will hear a racial slur during our conversation. Here we go. So, Mr. Meredith, you're a civil rights icon. Um, we are going to uh, introduce you as someone who's on three I life. I thought you said you read my books. You know, I don't use that term, civil rights. Oh, oh, that's right. That's right. You're known as a civil rights icon, but you do not use that term. And please tell us why. Because I'm a citizen of the United States. Yeah. I'm already entitled to every right and privilege of a citizen. I don't have to get them. All I have to do is figure out how to enjoy them. Amen. Amen. Well, you uh, say that you've been in your life's path on three missions from God. The first with the integration of University of Mississippi. The second your solo, which started out as a solo march for voting rights, and your third, we're going to talk about that you're currently involved in. We're going to talk about that a little later. Actually, you still don't pay close attention to words. Okay. I've never participated in a march. A march is a protest. Mm -hmm. I was walking from Memphis to Jackson, exercising my right and privileges of a citizen of the United States. Yes. Well, can we go back a few years and first talk about the integration of the University of Mississippi? Sure. Okay, great. Because you began your crusade for that effort in 1961. Even though you had years of higher education and nine years in the Air Force, you made that a mission. Uh, you wrote that, I plan to enter the University of Mississippi for the good of my people, my country, my state, my family, and myself. When you wrote that statement, and you submitted it to a lot of people, but you wrote a lot of letters to get that going, what did that mean to you at the time and now? It means that I had spent nine years in the military defending the rights and freedoms of democracy, which me and my kind did not enjoy. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, after six weeks of basic training, they allowed us to go home, mm -hmm. visit my mother. I took the Greyhound bus mm -hmm. from New Mexico to Mississippi. When we got to Texas, we had to get on the back of the bus. But when we got to the Mississippi River and crossed over into Vicksburg, Mississippi. The Greyhound bus driver stopped the bus, went to the back and pulled a black curtain even further back than where we blacks were already sitting in the back and say, now all you niggas get behind that curtain. So it wasn't, you know, um, it, it was no unclarity to me mm -hmm. that I wasn't enjoying those rights and privileges. And that's what I set out to do to destroy the system of white supremacy. Understood. 
and it and it is a system. We say systemic racism. We toss that term back and forth a lot, many times a day today. You saw it as well, a system early, early on in the 60s. Tell us about that. Well, the other thing, I spent nine years in the Air Force. Yes. And everybody knew that everybody in the United States military were soldiers. But I always considered myself a warrior. I was still fighting the Native American European war. Mm -hmm. uh, and I considered myself a warrior. Yeah. And I came back to continue the war. And I was fighting uh, my war. And still in that same mode. Mm-hmm. So if we'll, we'll jump forward a bit to the University of Mississippi. Um, you were really smart to, well, I guess first, ask for the advice of your mentor at the time, Medgar Evers, um, and a number of people who suggested you contact the NAACP Legal Defense Fund early in this process of getting the registrar to send you the application and get accepted. What was it like um, being in the presence of speaking with and um, communing with Medgar Evers? You know, I promised God I wasn't gonna lie no more. Yes. So I have to tell the truth. Okay. There's no question in my mind that without Medgar Evers, there would never have been a James Meredith at Ole Miss. But I didn't come back to Mississippi to go to Ole Miss. I came back to break the system of white supremacy. Ole Miss just turned out to be the uh, most uh, vulnerable place to attack the enemy. Mm. And and that was, uh, well, that was my thinking. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, if you read some books that people wrote uh, about James Meredith, they wrote about, but you know, they interviewed Mega while they were getting ready to write the book. And uh, Mega told them that I was the hardest headed son of a gun, that's the term he used, <laughs> uh, he'd ever met. And the more that he disagreed with me, the more I was sure I was right. So I'm gonna just leave that alone. I understand, I understand. So what um, I was fascinated about and embarrassed to say I didn't know this person, um, but I was thrilled actually to hear of Constance Baker Motley. Before she became a judge, she worked on these cases of um, integrating a number of schools. She worked on your case um, because I guess the, the Legal Defense Fund had recommended her 
But Thurgood Marshall was your first call. So we'll get back to Judge Motley. But Thurgood Marshall was your first call. Am I correct in reading that you hung up on him when he asked for some credentials? And you had already stated your credentials <laughs> in your letter. So you're like, I've done this already. You remember that? Well, of course, because very few people have had the audacity to question my integrity. Mm -hmm. And I just plain and simple didn't deal with no one that my word wasn't good enough for. So that's just that simple. I see. So maybe it was fortunate. I think it was that you ended up with, um, before she was a judge, Constance Baker Motley, an incredible, incredible, incredible lawyer. Um, she took the case. This was months, you know, a couple of years going. You two worked together pretty well, it seemed. Well, uh, I'm sure that without Constance Baker Motley and her husband, Joel, mm -hmm. uh, he was also a lawyer, but not, not, he was a private lawyer. Mm -hmm. And Constance Motley, she had spent uh, close to a decade already doing education cases in Mississippi. Yes. Actually, it was not desegregation or integration, is whichever term you want to use. Uh, it was equal pay. Most people don't realize that uh, uh, most of the earlier cases were not aimed at desegregation or integration. They were aimed at getting high pay for black teachers. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that's why Thurgood Marshall say he gave her the case because she had been on several cases in Mississippi in the South on the equal getting better pay for, for black uh, teachers. And she, uh, you know, she was a woman mm -hmm. and uh, there was a theory among a lot of people that certain women and she had all of the features. She was good looking. She was tall, a uh, couple of inches taller than me. And she was brilliant beyond what most people have any understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, not only, uh, but I guess the biggest thing was she treated me like I thought I was supposed to be treated. Yes. Because you all had to spend a lot of time um, together and apart with correspondence, I mean, not physically in the same room, but a lot of time on this because she would, she paid so much attention to detail. It was the small details and the nuances in the university's responses to your inquiries that she caught, it seems like. Well, and it was her patience because I was considering myself at war. And of course, uh, I wanted to rush everything up. 
even more than Mega Evers. I credit Constance Baker Motley with being the reason for James Meredith, old Miss thing being the way it was. Well, please tell our listeners when the Ole Miss judgment, because it had to go through the courts, was finally in your favor and there's an admission. What did that mean to you ultimately after such a long fight? It meant that I had to execute my main plan, which was to put the federal government in a position where they would have to send the military into Mississippi. And most people are unaware that that's what happened. There were over 30,000 of the best troops in America that came to Mississippi and put down the white supremacists and reestablished federal authority in the state of, of, of Mississippi. And most historians have refused to tell that story. But I think it's going to start to be told. Troops were ordered in by President Kennedy directly, yes? The Insurrection Act has only been uh, used twice in history. The first time was to start the Civil War. The second time was to subdue the state of Mississippi in the Ole Miss case. And they've been keeping that a secret from America and you're going to try to keep it a secret the rest of the time of, of, of our existence. Well, we'll be sure to get the word out here. <laughs> so, Mr. Meredith, we have James Meredith with us today, and a very important conversation. Ms. Meredith, Medgar Evers passed away in 1963. Your father passed away in 1965. This, both of these passings happened during a very tumultuous time in your life. How did that affect you, if at all? But, I mean, I know they were towering figures in your life. Well, I've never been personally involved with nothing that my thing has been a mission. I have not done anything since I was a little bitty boy that I didn't think was a mission from God. Mm -hmm. Most of my life, I've tried to camouflage that, if not hide it actually, but that's a fact. Can we talk about um, that part of your life, the spiritual part? May I ask, is there a certain religion that you were brought up in and then maybe grew to love later or were you church going or how did that um, mission from God come into your life? How did your spirituality, um, your spiritual nature evolve? It didn't evolve. It was me from birth. Okay. Uh, it's hard. Most of my life, I've given my father most of the credit. Oh. I have only one picture on my desk where I do most of my writing and reading. Uh, and that is a picture of my father's mother, my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And 
she is really the reason that I knew every book in the Bible before I was 12 years old. Okay. And it was because my father had taught them to me, although he couldn't read. His mother had taught him and the other siblings. But uh, when I was seven years old, my father came down with what they call a bad case of diabetes. Mm. Sugar, they used to call it. And I'm my father's second family. Okay. Uh, His first wife died. He had five children. He married my mother. And I was my mother's oldest child. Mm -hmm. But I was 17 years younger than the oldest of the other group and seven years younger than the youngest of the other group. So when he married my mother, she was 30 years old, which in those times, I mean, that was considered an old maid and- More mature. <laughs> everybody yeah. didn't give up on her. Right. I mean, now, and uh, then I came along and quite frankly, I was always made that I have to feel that I was special and that I had a special calling, a special mission. In reality, I know my mother created me. Mm-hmm. And when I was seven, like I said, my father came down with sugar, but he still had, at that time, I believe seven children. I mean, uh, still at home that he had to uh, feed. Mm -hmm. So he didn't lose any of his mental capacity, only his physical capacity. So for 10 years, from age seven to 17, I had to be my father's helpmate. Wherever he went, I had to drive the, and we had only a horse and wagon. Okay. And if you uh, go 15 miles to take care of business, and that's what he had to do, he had to become a a businessman. Mm. I mean, uh, buying and selling cows and whatever. So we on this wagon every day. Mm. I mean, going to places and he loved to talk. His mother had taught him every book in the Bible. And he taught me every book in the Bible. Mm-hmm. When I went into the military, this group is some religious group, the one that put Bibles in every hotel I've been in in America. Uh, they had a Bible put in by this group. Well, when I went in the military, 
they had only started to put the 1951. These, uh, they only did the, the New Testament. They didn't do the whole Bible, just the right. New Testament. Correct. And it was impossible for me as a military man to not pick up or step on a Bible. So I read the Ten Commandments. I read the uh, New Testament scores of time. I mean, because uh, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, uh, I didn't uh, do most of the things, uh, a lot of the things. That well, the vices, yeah. <laughs> I, I did do enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, wow. First time any of that ever come out of my mouth. We appreciate it. And so that was the foundation, the Bible being around, being everywhere, being taught to you, being in the vicinity of. Well, of course, that's my last mission from God is to uplift the mob character mm. of the people. And this is the Bible society that you were, you were forming. Yes. You, I'm sure I understand. Well, actually, I found many years ago. Where are you now with it? It's my last mission from God. Yes. And the Bible Society has two hoped-for goals. Okay. To get the people of Mississippi to read the Bible from cover to cover. That's just, that's one of the goals. The more important goal is what I truly believe that the solution to most all of our problems is God and Jesus Christ, which is the teachings of Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And what I really and truly believe and have always believed, never said before, is that if the black race mm -hmm. pursue and focus on good, doing good and doing right, uh, pursuing righteousness, which is different from right, Okay. But, uh, you know, most people, it used to be good and evil. Yeah. But now it's good and right. But it doesn't matter when you're following the teachings of Jesus Christ, you always end up good, uh, trying to do good. And I believe that the most significant thing in mankind up to now is the concept of Jesus Christ. More with Mr. Meredith and his mission, one of three missions from God, he says, when we return. We're back with James Meredith. I read a lot. <laughs> I believe that I have read more books on the black-white race issue mm -hmm. 
of anybody living in the world. And I know that black, the black church, black religion is an incomplete religion because it was the slave owners who made the decision to convert the black workforce to Christianity. Mm -hmm. But they did that to prevent rebellions like it happened in Haiti and like what happened in Virginia with Nat Turner. They did that to get control of a black workforce so that they would not have these rebellions. And it worked. Mm. Now, uh, uh, but it has done irrevocable harm to us as a people. It's torn our families apart. And no society can be what it ought to be without good family structures. And that's what the Ten Commandments are designed to do, to rebuild a broken people. And that's where we have to go from here. You know, Martin Luther King's most famous book was, Where Do We Go From Here? We have to go back to the basic fundamentals of religion, which is Christian religion, the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule. Well, that's where we have to go and that's the other purpose of the Bible Society. Well, thank you for walking in purpose. Can we talk about the second mission, your solo walk? Well, that's the most important one that I've completed up to now. <laughs> It was oh, pretty it's big. Much more important than old men. <laughs> you want to take us through it? What happened? Well, first of all, it was in the planning longer than any other thing I've done. Mm. Uh, the the that was, you know, most people think of war. They think of Vietnam and shooting and killing. Mm -hmm. Uh, the biggest war is for the minds of men. Oh. Yes. And the walk against fear was designed to expose and to challenge that all pervasive fear that kept the white supremacy system working as the way of life that people had to follow. Fear is the most powerful force there is in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, and there are so many things to fear. Most of the things that people fear, they don't even know it. They don't even think about it. They don't even know that, that that's dominating their lives. So the, but of course, the fear uh, of bodily harm, particularly of, of being killed, is the most powerful 
of the fields. I mean, uh, so I deliberately, but you see, these things are so complex, particularly religion. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's so complex. Everybody thinks that whatever they're doing in the name of religion is good. That ain't necessarily so. Correct. Uh, and uh, and most people know that, that they are hypocrites, but everybody can make themselves believe anything they want to. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but the walk against fear, I don't mind 50 years later, if they just call it the march against fear. That's what everybody <laughs> know, but that's what Dr. King and the rest of the leaders had to name, had to make it to fit their agenda. It's, you said it was a long time, the planning. So tell us about the route you chose and were you planning to sleep? Were you planning to, um, you brought food? I mean, how, what was part of the plan? Well, actually, it was the second stage of my wall against white supremacy. The purpose was to destroy white supremacy. Yes. I mean, the, uh, uh, I, I want to go back to Ole Miss because Ole Miss was key. Mm -hmm. to the walk against fear. I mean... Uh, we know it was the first mission. Right. The, 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 I tell you, I still have to call it a walk because March is just... Uh, I will say this. Mm -hmm. I've never seen this written anywhere. I never participated in the march against fear. Mm. But Dr. King and all of the other leaders knew that I wasn't going to take part when they named it the James Meredith March Against Fear. That uh, James Meredith was to, was to acknowledge that I started it. Yes. And when you started it and then something happened where there was an interruption, you were shot. Right, but that was almost irrelevant to me. The only really? thing I thought about <laughs> oh, is no. that I didn't die. Oh yeah, I mean, it put you in the hospital. Thank God you didn't die. Uh, do you remember that moment? <laughs> I just told you. The only thing I thought about that I knew I wasn't dead. Yeah. And that to me was the only thing that mattered. That meant that I could still fight because most of my fight wasn't with bullets. It was for the mind. Mm -hmm. mm, powerful. Yes. Yes. I understand there were 4,000 people when the march ended. 4,000 marchers. No, 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 no. no, no? You, we need to straighten that out. Please tell us. When I started the walk against fear. Both the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 had been passed. Yes. 
Because this was 1966 when you did your walk. And when the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1955, 65, yes. There were 8,000 Blacks on the register to vote in the state of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. A year later, there were only 6,000 Blacks in the entire state of Mississippi registered to vote. Hmm. That's why I, and it was the system of white supremacy that made that a reality. And the greatest cause for the existence of white supremacy and effectiveness was fear. And I had to expose that fear and challenge that fear and tell you the truth, I've read a lot of books, and the only person that for over 50 years used the word white supremacy was James Meredith. You read all them other books, but you won't find a book I wrote that don't say what I was out to do, destroy mm -hmm. white supremacy. And now even the president of the United States said that we're gonna get rid of that. For me, the graduating from Ole Miss, and most people don't, they know I went, but most people don't know I graduated. I mean- Set the uh, record straight, yes. That, but the, uh, <laughs> wow. My daddy used to always say, anybody talk more than five minutes ain't got much to say. No, he, he didn't say much. Ain't got nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I we are learning so much from you. Can you tell me, um, um, you know, for our final moments together, can you tell us about your love for Mississippi? What kind of relationship is the relationship between James Meredith and Mississippi? Mississippi is the center of the universe. And it's particularly the center of the black-white universe. Mm -hmm. Mississippi has made every major policy regarding the black-white race issue. And it's either gonna make the next one or there won't be a workable next one. And uh, so, but not only Mississippi, Mississippi, in my estimation, is the most beautiful place there is in the world. I know you wrote about the women of Mississippi in your book being the most beautiful. Do you recall that? <laughs> well, and I noticed them too. Yes. <laughs> you made that very clear. <laughs> Actually, I'm glad you brought the women up. Okay. <laughs> because the most significant part, if I'm to be successful with the mild character uplift, is the black woman over 30 years old. Hmm. 
Tell me more. They are the most <laughs> important people in the state of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. There's no bank that could open its doors. There is no restaurant that could open its doors. There is no black church that could open its doors. There's nothing in Mississippi that could operate without the black woman. The black woman is the only person that know what a family ought to be. Because Amen. the man for more than 50 years now been excluded, driven out of his place. I mean, he's still making them babies, but uh, <laughs> it's more to the place of a man than making a baby. And if he does it with a black woman, well then, hey, Problem solved. <laughs> well, well, but you see, only the black woman can make these things happen. Yes. And if she doesn't see fit to do her job, do her thing, as they say, to, with the brothers. <laughs> I love those moves, Mr. Meredith, you're making right now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Ole Miss and all of your education uh, before you were surrounded by young people. We have young people in our audience. We have young people who are progressive. We have young people changing the world. Um, you were with a number of student organizations. I don't know if you were so much with them as you rallied them. Um, what do young people need to do? Uh, right now, in this current state of where we are today, still white supremacy is the biggest threat. What are you? What's your? What are your oh, instructions? The biggest threat is that the majority of people in America don't know good from bad, don't know right from wrong. It's a moral threat. The moral crisis. Yes. And the only answer to the moral crisis is God and Jesus Christ are the equivalent. It don't matter if it's Buddha. Mm. I, I mean, uh, it don't matter if it's Shinto. But it, 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 it's a spiritual center. Yes. When God called Moses on the top of the mountain mm -hmm. and got his attention and with the bun and bush and told him he was going to send him back to Egypt to bring the rest of the slaves to freedom. Mm -hmm. And God complained like we do about everything. Oh, no, not me. You ain't going to send me back over there. Uh, but eventually, he followed God. And God told him, when I get them free, all you got to do is lead them back to this mountain mm -hmm. and come back up here for further instructions. The further instructions was how to rebuild the broken 
people. And that was the Ten Commandments. Yes. Jesus Christ came along 2,000 years later. They didn't stop doing good things again. And he came up with a better idea of how to rebuild a broken society. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean that, uh, so, and it's time for reawakening. And I think that we are the ones that can do the awakening. <laughs> Fantastic. And I thank you. I thank you. I thank you so much for your time, your counsel, your wisdom, your experience, sharing that with us. Very, very special. Thank you, sir. Thank you, everyone, for listening here on KBLA Talk 1580. For more heroes like Mr. Meredith, visit us at BeforeYouGo.tv. That's BeforeYouGo.tv. Heroes in your circles may be just a phone call away. Just pick up the phone and make that call. There's no time like the present. What a gift. What a gift.